Oh, hi, it's Cindy. So today we are happy to introduce you to one of our favorite podcasts by sharing an episode in our feed. Why We Write features conversations between folk music reporter Kim Rule and a handpicked array of great singer-songwriters presented by Folk Alley. So much goes into a song, the songwriter's intimate life, their upbringing, their worldview, what they see going on in the world. So what moves them to put pen to paper? How do they do it? Kim explores all of this with some of the finest songwriters working these days, old favorites, up-and-comers, and everything in between. Kim is one of my favorite music writers and, frankly, one of my favorite people. Her laid-back demeanor is easy to vibe with and does well for her scholarly approach. Kim is basically a folk brainiac and cannot be stopped. I first met her while she was the editor-in-chief at No Depression. She's since gone on to publish her first book, A Singing Army, Zilphia Horton and the Highlander Folk School. A former singer-songwriter herself, Kim not only brings her big writer's brain and cool attitude into these conversations, but she has a unique musician's perspective that her guests can feel and relate to. Basic Folk is pleased to share Kim's interview with Roseanne Cash. This episode was originally published on June 9th, 2021. Hope you enjoy Kim's conversation with Roseanne Cash and get into the other episodes of Why We Write, which you can find wherever you get podcasts, or you can check it out at folkalley.com. Here's Kim and why we write. Hello, my name is Kim Rule, and you're listening to the Why We Write podcast brought to you by Folk Alley. For this episode, I got the chance to talk about the why and how of songwriting with one of my personal favorites, Roseanne Cash. Roseanne's career has spanned more than four decades and included 11 number one hits. I personally love her songwriting because of the literary vibe that comes through it. This has been especially true in more recent years as she's been collaborating with her husband John Leventhal and turning out stunning songwriting on award-winning songs like A Feather's Not a Bird and Eight Gods of Harlem from her She Remembers Everything album. In fact, Roseanne Cash is a gifted storyteller in general. She writes a lot more than just songs. Her articles and essays and her memoir, Composed, are written in a voice that is equal parts poetry and a sort of gentle but assertive candor. Reading what she's written, you get the feeling she understands the world in a way that most of us don't. I couldn't help but wonder if she writes primarily to understand it even better. So that's where our recent conversation began. I hope you enjoy listening to Roseanne Cash talking about why she writes. I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship of uh, music and place. You've lived in some places where musicians flock to these cities in in Nashville and New York and Memphis. Do you write differently in Nashville than you do in New York? Yeah, you're talking uh, place and geography, both context and content. And when I write about a place or I name drop a city, you know, it's it has a certain resonance to me. I mean, Memphis has uh, reverberates with everything Memphis is, you know, the hot stew that Memphis has always been. And it, like in um, a song John and I wrote, Modern Blue, my lyric about uh, Barcelona and ending up back in Memphis, you know, there was just, I had just been to Barcelona and it was just so rich and layered and 
feeling and food and architecture. And then Memphis, such a contrast. And I started thinking, well, has anybody put Barcelona and Memphis in the same song? And if they did, it was probably Dylan, but I don't think so. So I was kind of proud of myself for doing that. But these places resonate, you know, like in A Feather's Not a Bird, starting in um, Florence, Alabama, and then through the strongest shoals, which is Muscle Shoals, and on to Arkansas. I mean, that's an urgent journey through the South, and each place has its own feeling and history. And then for context, different places do inspire different kinds of songs. You know, I wrote my song, uh, the lyrics to 7th Avenue when I lived on 7th Avenue in New York City. I couldn't have written that if I'd lived anywhere else. And um, all the songs on the river and the thread were either written in the South or inspired by trips to the South. So... Yeah, and Seven Year Ache, I wrote, you know, on after having a fight with my then-husband on Ventura Boulevard and, <laughs> you know, thinking about the boulevard and what that means and feels like. I do love geography, and I love putting a sense of place and time in a lyric. It just makes it come alive and... There's just, like I said, particular resonance to each place. Yeah, and well, and Americana roots music, whatever you want to call it, is very tied to America. Regionally, there's just different sounds and different flavors you get along the Mississippi Delta, different in Los Angeles, different, you know, in New York. You seem to tap into that very frequently and easily. Well, I, I try to tap into it frequently. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not and sometimes it requires you know being in a place and soaking it up and you know memphis is really powerful to me i was born in memphis and sun records is still there stax records is still there the lorraine motel where martin luther king was shot um the old peabody hotel memphis college of art which is now closed but you know, Elvis's house, the house I lived in when I was born. I mean, those are powerful spots to me. Um, and I, I, it's almost impossible to invo- avoid <laughs> some kind of imprint that leads to a lyric. Yeah. Well, in thinking of like, um, not to stay too long on uh, the river, the thread, but this, the sunken lands you talk about. Uh, cans of paint you know and and um it seems like place is sort of an avenue into a story for you as well as to think of yourself in that context or think of somebody in that context yeah and now the things i'm writing too i just uh wrote a song with uh matt berninger of the national and he and i had a discussion about place and um in our pasts before we wrote the song, you know, about talking about the South and the um, legacy of the South and the pain of the South and how to resolve that 
in yourself? I mean, that was a real conversation we had and then wrote this song together. Um, so the visceral qualities of a place, I mean, you can drive across America now and it can be a string of McDonald's to you if that's all you're looking for. Or you can soak up the history and the, you know, like my song Night School, the magnolia trees and the Civil War battlefields and how the hair, the air is just wet with heat, so heavy. I just try to pay attention. Do you think of yourself as a Southern writer? Not totally, although sometimes I want to think of myself as a Southern writer. You know, I'm reading Eudora Welty right now again, and to think, oh, God, I want to be that specific, you know, about place and time. Um, I'm a hybrid, though. You know, I grew up in Southern California. I've been a New Yorker for 30 years, was born in the South, but I've actually lived less in the South than I did in California or New York. Still, my DNA, you know, both of my parents were Southerners. I understand the South and Southern people, if that's not too much of a generality. And there's so much I love about it. Um, And the older I get, the more I uh, feel an urgency to tap into whatever that means as a writer. Yeah. Um, I've been watching The Crown. Have you have you watched? Oh the yeah, Crown? I'm obsessed with The Crown. Totally obsessed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've been thinking about. I mean, it, the theme that's that's so accessible is the idea of family and the responsibility we have to the people who came before us, people who come after us. And thinking of your family, you know, this line of writers and musicians, your dad, obviously, your kids as well, your husband. You are an individual songwriter, very much do your own thing, but how does all of that enter the room when you're writing or does it? Do you feel like a responsibility artistically to both sides of of that? There are ghosts in the room when I write oftentimes. And, um, you know, it's a temptation to get sucked down the rabbit hole of uh, the past and legacy and ancestral history and unresolved suffering, unresolved prejudices. Sometimes I even feel a responsibility about breaking the chain. Um, You know, when writing The River and the Thread, I started to realize that you have to cut some threads and cherish others and the ones you cut are equally as valuable, you know, making that decision. Um, But sometimes I do get obsessed with writing out a certain theme until it's done. And apparently there are things that are not done because the newest song I wrote is called The Killing Fields and it's about uh, lynchings in the South and the shame and degradation and uh, unresolved trauma of that for Southerners on both sides, black and white, you know, equal participation. I, I mean, there's this um, organization in Arkansas I support because it's called the uh, Memorial for Peace and Justice Movement, 
And I think the reason it's called movement is because it brings to the table the descendants of those who were lynched and the descendants of those who participated in it, you know, to try to reconcile. And I mean, that's a really powerful thing. And sometimes I feel like I'm trying to do that in myself, you know, my racist grandfather, my woke children, (laughs) Um, you know, and I... uh, cutting the threads. So, yeah, sometimes they're in the room, sometimes they're ghosts, sometimes they're inspiration, sometimes I'm just writing something until I can get rid of it. Do you often start a song uh, thinking it's about one thing, and then after maybe even a couple years of playing it, you realize that this is totally something else? Or while writing it, too. You know, I, I, like, The Killing Fields starts out with John, my husband, in Brooklyn and me in uh, California. And I thought that's what I was writing about. And then suddenly I went down this hole of the South and my own history in the South and then came back up to say, you know, we are not who we were then. So yeah, sometimes it's like a painting that you don't know where it's going, and then it ends up being an abstract rather than a portrait or vice versa. But yeah, sometimes after 30 years of singing something, I uh, realize it wasn't about anger, it was about hurt, or it wasn't about partying, it was about torment. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, life lessons just, you know. Yeah, development. It's development, yeah. Speaking of John, I'm fascinated by couples who work together because I think very few can do it and still like each other, especially creatively. How does that work? Do you just come to him with a mostly finished song? or? Um, it works always. And I think the reason that it still works and is we're not very modern in that way that People who are married can spend a lot of time apart and make it work. Neither one of us is like that. We like being together most of the time. And if we didn't, we wouldn't have survived because we're on the road together, in the studio together, raising children together, a house together. You know, we're we're just not apart. Um, I just spent six weeks away from him. You know, my daughter had a baby and I went down and quarantined for two weeks and then moved into her house and everything. That was the longest John and I have ever been away from each other. And it was disconcerting. I felt untethered from the earth. (laughs) And I think he did as well. Um, But creatively, we um, sometimes are in conflict. I mean, we've had terrible fights about songs or recording or how something should be phrased or arranged or voiced. And we've also had moments of real transcendence with each other in creating something. And it works in all ways. Sometimes I have a partial lyric. He says, do you have anything? I have a partial lyric. I give it to him. He starts writing the music. I kind of see where it's going. I finish the lyric. Sometimes I have a complete lyric. Sometimes he comes to me with a melody when when we write together. Um, you know, we still write separately as well. So do you, is it something that you'll work on together for weeks or do you ever just sit down and say, okay, we're going to write this thing? Well, sometimes months, sometimes years, you know, there's a song that he's just 
I, I just finished the lyric for called um, Sparrow in the Falling Rain, and he just finished recording himself because he's making an album of his own music right now. And I've had that Sparrow in the Falling Rain for probably two years in my iPhone, you know, a partial lyric. And then when he said, I'm going to record this, then I had to finish the lyrics for him. <laughs> yeah. So how for people that, that uh, don't write, uh, who might be listening to this, how does that process work to, to come up with a three to five minute song over the course of years? Um, what does that look like? Well, obviously I save lyrics, you know, and I have multiple ways of saving them on my phone, on my computer, and massive numbers of notebooks. Um, and sometimes I find scraps of paper. I just found one in my date book that I had stuffed in there a long time ago, which is really disorganized. But I, I'm not one of those people who has a perfectly neat desk and everything is, you know, um, it kind of drives John crazy because he is like that. Um, but yeah, my song Rules of Travel, I had that chorus for eight years and I knew it was a really good chorus, but I had no idea what the lyrics should be until we started making the album, or we're close to making the album. And then I got something happened in my life that I knew how to write the lyrics. I can't even remember what it was. But maybe sometimes it's waiting for that, you know, a little water to be <laughs> thrown on the plant. <laughs> um I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes am guest teacher in songwriting classes, and I tell young people, never get rid of your old lyrics. Put them in a file. Save them. You can come back to them. Sometimes I'll be working on something, and I'll get stuck, and I go through files of old lyrics, and I find something that makes no sense, but somehow it works, you know, and marry things together. I did that with my song, uh, World of Strange Design. It was like two completely separate part lyrics, and I put them together. Nice. Has that changed much over the years, or um, do you yeah. feel like you trust the process more now than you did when you were younger? Well, one thing is that I have a lot more unfinished lyrics in files over the years. That <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, of course, I trust the process more. I mean. Don't you, Kim? After doing it for a certain number of years, you, you, even though you're still insecure, like I don't know where this is going. Oh, I'll never do another good one again. You trust that that is in itself is part of the process. The insecurity, the confusion, then the light at the end of the tunnel, then you know the editing. Um, I used to not be as comfortable with ambiguity, not as comfortable as I am now. Because life is ambiguous, you know, it's not clear cut. It's not all about broken hearts and your broken heart staying that way. I mean, that's, that's what I wrote about when I was young, you know, pain and how it just stayed that way. It doesn't stay that way. And neither does the other half of it. Neither does contentment. You know, it's like Rilke said, you have to love the questions. I think I love the questions a lot more than I used to. I'm more content with not having an answer. Yeah, I think, you know, that's just comes with age. And, you know, 
over time, you sort of develop a better relationship with yourself. Do you feel like there's certain themes that you've been chasing all this time, like the idea of like getting to the center of of a question that you had when you were younger or whatever that you keep writing toward? I think there, there's one question, and it's who am I? Who am I? What do I think? What do I feel? And sometimes you don't know until you write it. And it's like uncovering tiny pieces all through your entire life, you know? I And writing about an imagined future or an imagined past, you know, because our memories are not accurate all the time, and trying to organize it, organize the pieces of yourself so that it makes sense to yourself. I mean, and I think that we all have this compelling need to let our voice be heard. I always think about this this philosopher I, I read back in the 80s, Carolyn Heilbrunn, and she said that women need to live their lives in the public sphere just to balance out the millennia of male lives that were lived in the public sphere. So a lot of times when I've been afraid to say it in a song or in prose or in, in you know, anything, I think of that like, well, <laughs> I'm just helping balance things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've never talked to anybody in a creative job who doesn't struggle with, you know, self-doubt or some sort of, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever. Like, I think the most successful people find a way to use that. Mm, or, or Absolutely. To, how have you learned to deal with that? I mean, I still have it. Imposter syndrome, insecurity, abject fear, um, complete despondency about my lack of ability. You know, I mean, it, on a regular basis, I think I'm a shit songwriter. Why do I bother? This song will never be as good as his or hers. I'm a hack. Mine are superficial and hers are deep. You know, I mean, it's it's endless. It's part of, but it's part of it. Like you said, I don't know any creative people who don't have this either. And if they don't, they're not very good, you know, because the hubris just kind of ruins everything. But the way I deal with it is that I, I know it's there, I recognize it. And also, I just feel like, even if I don't, um, and I'm not sure how to explain this, but I feel like every song has its own potential. Like, some songs, they're their cup is really small, you know, but if you can get it full, then you've gotten to what you're supposed to do with that song. Some songs, their cup is much larger, and it requires a lot of due diligence to get it that cup full. But I, as time has gone on, I know when the song has achieved its full potential. And, uh, Unfortunately, sometimes that's like long after I've recorded it and I go, you know, it's like I smack my forehead and go, oh, it should have been that word or that line. But that's what I aim for. Like sometimes when I start writing something, I go, eh, this is just a, um, well, it's better than mediocre because if it's really just mediocre, I don't bother. It's it's okay, and it has merit, so I'm going to finish it and take it to its best potential. 
And then sometimes it's like really inspiring, like, oh, God, if I could get to this one, if I could like fulfill this one, it's going to be really good. So I think um, it's partly the songs that get dropped in your in your lap. I mean, I've often thought that some songs are already complete out in the ether, and you just have to find a way to pull them in. Do you think that recording is the end of writing the song? No. Unfortunately not. Uh, I mean, sometimes, well, I mean, of course, sometimes it is. It's like you go, that's done. That song is as good as it's going to be. And I recorded it. And sometimes the recording, you go, oh, I could have done it better. Sometimes the song, oh, I wish I would change that line. But, you know, sometimes in concert, I'll change a word or a line in a song that I wrote decades ago just for the hell of it, just to see how it feels. Wondering about how uh, your relationship with songwriting and your relationship with writing articles and essays and all that kind of stuff, are these separate things for you or does it feel like different avenues toward the same thing? They're different avenues. You know, I mean, each has its own skill set, but I try to find the lyricism in prose. I try to find the narrative in lyrics um, there's melody and prose. I mean, if you read James Joyce, you know it's James Joyce without looking at the title of the book because he has a certain melodic, um, there's a key to it, you know, there's a recognizable quality. So I try to find my own melody and prose, and sometimes it's kind of like, predictable to me. I try to break out of it. Um, I do love songwriting, you know, that's first in my heart. And it's prescribed to me. There's, you know, there's a rhyme scheme there. It's a structure that you set up at the beginning of the song and try to build your playhouse on that structure. I wanted to ask about the list, the songs that your your dad told you. Were, were all of those songs really, did they all wind up being very influential for you? or They were influential for different reasons. Like, uh, for instance, She's Got You. That was influential because of the way Patsy Cline delivered it. And it was kind of, um, you know, it was repetitive. And it just was like a puzzle. You know, you broke down each section like a scene. And it was put together very meticulously. You know, the structure of it was was tight. So that song was, yeah, I got it. That was influential in that way. And I was afraid to approach it because of Patsy Cline's version, which was perfection. But I thought, oh, you know, John kept encouraging me. I said no to that song for a long time. And he said, look, you know, you can bring yourself to this song. You don't have to compare it to Patsy. Other songs like 500 Miles, that song was influential because it was, it tapped into something about uh, early country music and uh, that travel and longing for home, that, that that's a recurrent theme in Appalachian songs and, you know, back to Celtic ballads and um, it, that's a tradition in folk and country music that I really love, you know, like, because back in the early part of the 20th century and the 19th century, once you left home, you you never saw your parents again, you never saw your family again. Um, many, many times, you were just too far away, there was no way to get back. And so that theme is just so 
profoundly moving to me. So that song was influential because of that. I knew that there was a spot in history and that resonated for me. It's part of our American collective unconscious. And, um, you know, motherless children, kind of the same reason. It's a theme in early folk and country music that was... Um, it's recurrent, and the suffering in that song, you know, I mean, there's a whole history of songs about mother. I actually wrote the uh, the the foreword to the accompanying book that went with the CD collection of songs about mother that Dusta Digital put out. It's really fascinating. So yeah, they were all influential in different ways for different reasons, and some of them as a songwriter, some of them as a singer, some of them for the history that I valued. I know there's like an exercise of trying to rewrite a great song or trying to, you know, Sure. are there exercises you do like that that have ever actually resulted in something you've kept? Um, A lot of times I write a lyric, or particularly John when he's writing music, he will have a kind of inspirational spark or base for it, you know, like this is this is a credence type song, or uh, this is you know um, a Motown type song or whatever. Um, I'm a little more clumsy with that. I have his musical vocabulary, but not his musical ability. You know, so he can play around with that and find certain voicings, chord changes, harmonics that I might not know how to get to. But obviously, I have, you know, just uh, as much knowledge and love of just records and songs. So um, sometimes I'll start writing a lyric and lean towards a melody that makes it collapse in on itself. Like sometimes I, if you're writing a lyric about something that's sensitive or tender or vulnerable, and you put that kind of melody with it, it collapses in on itself. But if you can provide some edge and urgency and contrast with the melody, then it comes alive. I was thinking, um, you know, this whole podcast idea came from my thinking about influences and how musicians influence each other and and various other things that influence songwriting Mm -hmm. um and thinking about the list and this idea of motown you know going for a certain kind of sound Mm -hmm. um all the ways that different kinds of music come into the process even if you're not consciously trying to make a credence riff or whatever is that something that you spend any time thinking about or is it does it come up later when you're listening back to tracks or singing a song later and realizing you know so and so is coming through uh both sometimes you have an unconscious uh you know it's in your toolbox and it just comes out. You know, it's like I listen to the Beatles enough that sometimes that structure, that uh, those melodies are, are going to come out unconsciously. Um, sometimes it's intentional, you know, something that's really inspirational. I'll say to John, I want to write something like that, like that, with that kind of beat, with that kind of um, in-your-face, you know, urgency. I like that word, urgency. <laughs> Um, and like, so it happens both ways. Sometimes you recognize it later. Sometimes you start with that as an inspiration. I mean, you know, nobody's going to do anything completely original at this point. 
there's what, five, five stories and Shakespeare wrote them all. And, you know, if you're, there's 12 notes, whatever. There's, uh, I mean, obviously the best artists bring their own self to it and their own interpretation and their own use of whatever inspired them. And, but I think you can trace most things back or you're part of a tradition anyway. I mean, I'm part of a singer-songwriter tradition. I'm not completely original in what I do. Mm -hmm. But going back to that word urgency, uh, you're not really a political songwriter. You more of, I think of you as more of like a storyteller. Your mm -hmm. songs are very great in narrative structure, and but you you don't shy away from commenting on the world, you know, or no. telling stories that are topical like your newer song crawl into the promised land certainly doesn't you know mince words i know a lot of songwriters are afraid to go there because of this the shut up and sing thing yeah. do you struggle with that or or is it is it more like you just have something to say and you're gonna say it and um, i don't struggle with it anymore yeah. i mean i because i feel urgent because you know, most of my life has been lived. And I know that regrets I will have at the end of my life will be the things I didn't say or the beliefs I didn't act on, you know. And what is going to happen to me at this point for saying in a song, deliver me from tweets and lies and having everybody know what it means? I mean, what's going to happen? Somebody's not going to buy my record? Or somebody's going to call me a name or insult me. I mean, it's already all happened. It's, it's, I mean, it sounds so trite, Kim, but you do have to be true to yourself. I mean, you do have to have the courage of your own convictions. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? Just navel gazing. You know, and uh, who was it that said all art is political? I can't remember who said that, but I believe that all art is political, no matter if you it's topical or not, because the point is to change you or to at least make you reflect on yourself or make something spark in you that you hadn't thought of before or um, inspire your inclination towards compassion or resistance or transmutation of something in yourself yeah i was thinking you know i had asked steve earl one time if if there's such a thing as as writing a song that's not a political statement uh, and he was like basically you have a platform to stand on and a, something in front of your face that makes you louder than everybody else so anything that comes out of your mouth is going to be political um, I, I agree and also if you embody yourself that in itself is a political statement because you're not going to please everybody, um, and you shouldn't, and it's going to resonate in some ways, because what people respond to is authenticity and truth. And if that truth is, will spark something, if it's, if it's delivered in a way that uh, is meaningful, you know, I mean, uh, everything we're talking about, 
um, requires d- discipline too. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to spew out my feelings and that's going to be enough. No, I mean, you, if you're a writer, a songwriter, you have to apply your discipline to it. It's not enough just to be inspired. So in this year of holding up and having to avoid the world not being able to perform, uh, not being able to travel, where are songs coming from? Well, pressure cooker, partly. (laughs) Fear. (laughs) Outrage. Thinking about what is truly meaningful the uncertainty of the future, treasuring small things, uh, outrage again. (laughs) You know, there's a lot. I mean, I wasn't riding on the road in the last couple of years because I was exhausted and it was too much. So being at home, I've had the privilege of being inspired to write songs. Do you find uh, sort of circling back to the idea of place that just walking around New York, listening to strangers, um, Do you ever come out of those situations with material? Sure. I mean, my the song I wrote with Chris Christopherson and Elvis Costello, um, Eight Gods of Harlem, that came out of hearing somebody on the street, a woman, Hispanic woman, talking to herself. And I thought she said, Ocho Dios. I don't speak Spanish, but I thought that meant eight gods. And I couldn't get it out of my mind. Why was she saying eight gods? And she was getting off the A train from Harlem. Why was she saying that? And that led to, you know, I wrote the first verse of that song. I had heard about another shooting in Harlem, and it made then it made sense to me. And so I wrote that first verse. So, yeah, I mean, overhearing things, reading um, a phrase or a combination of words that just suddenly hits me and I write down um, stealing surreptitiously. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a museum person? Do museums oh, yeah. Do it for oh, you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love museums. I mean, one thing I want to write about, there's this incredible painting of Joan of Arc, and it's massive at the Met. And I think about that painting regularly. So I'm hoping it turns into a song at some point. Oh, gosh, Joan of Arc. There's so many, so many things you can do with that. Yeah, Um, don't tell any other songwriters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like there could be a a Joan of Arc challenge to every songwriter. uh, See what you can do. (gasps) Wouldn't that that be a so cool idea? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So this podcast is called Why We Write. And I realized I hadn't asked you that. Why do you think you write? I don't think uh, why I write. I don't think of myself as separate from my writing. I don't think of another life that I have. Like I'm five feet five. I'm a writer. It's that's, that's it for me. I mean, and I've been a writer since I was nine years old when I wrote my first poem. But why I write, because that's who I am. And because of the question I said earlier about we write, because the central question is, who am I? And who am I connected to in this world? And what is the future going to bring? And what does the past mean? And who came before me? And who will come after me? And what do I owe to them? Which threads should I break? 
which should I nurture and add another link to? And what of me will survive? And all of those questions boil down to who am I? And that's why I write. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kim. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Why We Write with Kim Rule, a podcast featuring conversations with songwriters about songwriting, is produced by Folk Alley and the Freshgrass Foundation, a 501c3 dedicated to creating and celebrating innovative grassroots music. Find out more at folkalley.com. And special thanks to Mike and Ruthie of the Mammals for the use of their song End of Time for our theme music. Find it on their album Million to One, out on Humble Abode Music.